Hello and welcome to my podcast, Neurific. I'm Fabienne Hübener and my guest today is Edward Moser. Edward Moser and his wife, Maybrit Moser, and Richard O'Keefe won the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 2014. They won the prize for their discovery of the grid cells. These are cells deep in the brain that form a kind of GPS system. What is so special about the grid cells that the Nobel Committee took notice? Well, I can say a little bit how these cells are special. So they're strictly tied to the other type of cells that O'Keefe discovered in 1971, the place cells. So it's easiest to begin with those. Those are cells in, um, in the brains of rats and mice, and now we also know in, in primates, humans, mm -hmm. that uh, are active only when the animal is at uh, a certain location or when we are at a certain location in the room. So different cells have different places of firing, and then together uh, they form a map of, uh, of where uh, one is at any given uh, time. But you mean together? So, it's not that the cells from the ma map, but their firing forms the screen. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. So that different cells are active at different locations, but if you then fed that information into a computer, then the computer could tell from the combination of activity exactly where the rat is. And then, um, 30 years later, then we, uh, we were searching for the inputs to these cells and asking why, how does this play signal arise? And then we recorded in one region that was one step up from the hippocampus where these play cells had been found. And uh, what we saw was that there are also some cells that are spatial, that means that they fire in certain locations. But each individual cell fires in many locations, and those locations form a very strict pattern, a hexagonal pattern that covers the entire uh, available uh, space. And uh, that, that pattern is... It looks like a grid, therefore we call them grid cells. Then, uh, and and um, that grid for each cell then contains information about position in the room, in distance, uh, measured in distance and direction. So it is almost like a, a coordinate system, or a graphics paper if you want, which you can use to measure position. And uh, it, it is commonly thought now then that this these two cells together with some other cells that we have, we and others have found later, that they um, form a kind of internal map in the brain that is used then to localize ourselves in space. And uh, that the grid cells then are, are the metric of that map, the metric meaning that, that this is uh, the part that is used to measure distances and especially our own distance relative to places where we came from mm -hmm. just before. And uh, because of this unfolding of a spatial map in a certain part of the brain, I, that is what the uh, Nobel Committee used as their argument for um, giving us uh, the, the prize. Um, why that is important, that I can't tell how they were thinking, but... Mm -hmm. one but of I the guess there are um, discoveries of other kind of cells in the brain, so mm. there must be something special about them. Yeah, what is special in a sense is that, that uh, this is, I often say it's in the middle of the brain, mm -hmm. because it's very far away from uh, any of the sensory receptors and also from the motor systems. It's, it's really many, many steps into the brain. and. Uh, 
one would perhaps then expect that it might be quite difficult so far away from the sensors to see anything that really matches um, a feature out in the world. Mm -hmm. But in this case it is and, uh, and it's also clear that these place fields and grid fields are made up by the brain itself because there is, there is nothing like that in the sensory input mm -hmm. and at least no hexagonal pattern. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that sense it provides a code to how the brain is working and how the brain is making its own patterns. And um, in that sense maybe it is a window into the inner cognitive computations of the brain. Mm -hmm. And I think because of that potential that it can point to mechanisms that the brain may use also for other types of cognition uh, mm -hmm. away from the senses then uh, that is, I think that was used as one of the reasons given uh, for the price, as far mm -hmm. as I remember. And um, when you were sticking the electrodes into the brain, um, you didn't know exactly where to aim to, for, or was it sort of uh, uh, a play of game of luck that no, you no. just <laughs> trying no, no. out different kinds of cells, or you had an idea? Yeah, we had an idea. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, uh, of course, it started out with the play cells in the hippocampus, but then we wanted to go to the main inputs to those play cells. Uh, and where to go then was obvious from the anatomy. We worked together with an anatomist on finding the, the optimal spot. Uh, others had recorded in that area, but much further down, so it was sort of off target, not in the area that actually hit the play cells. So that was one first step. So I think we were in the right location, but it was, of course, uh, it was a region that no one had recorded from before. Uh, so everything could happen. It was a gamble, but um, but uh, I mean there was a reason for going just down there, and it was possible to navigate the electrodes just to that spot. That wasn't too difficult. Mm -hmm. In a German newspaper, the Süddeutsche Zeitung, I guess they were here yesterday. Mm. Uh, one journalist criticized the decision of the Nobel Prize Committee. Prize should be awarded to those conferred the greatest benefit of, on mankind. That's what mm. the Nobel Prize says. And this journalist just couldn't find the benefit for mankind in, in your work. Is there one? <laughs> well, uh, I think that's up to others to judge. Mm -hmm. But uh, I would, in a general sense, say that uh, what we are doing is basic research on how the brain works. Uh, but it is basic in the sense that it's not a question of whether it will be applied at some point, but when it will be applied and how it will be applied. So understanding how the brain works, how the normal brain works, is, as I see it, uh, fundamental to and necessary for actually understanding what goes wrong mm -hmm. in disease. And in our case, there's a particular, particular connection to, uh, to uh, uh, Alzheimer's disease, because Alzheimer's disease in most cases starts just in the brain area that contains the grid cells mm -hmm. in the entorhinal cortex. So that by finding out uh, how uh, space is uh, constructed and how space then is used for making memories, that's uh, a next step, one will find out what goes wrong in Alzheimer's disease. And if one finds out what goes wrong, then one can also interfere at a much earlier stage. Mm -hmm. And Alzheimer's disease develops very, very slowly, thought to be over at least a decade or even mm -hmm. more. 
And uh, that means that if one can interfere much earlier, one can perhaps in the future prevent it. Um, mm. So the potential is obviously there for, for uh, doing something for Alzheimer's disease. Um, but of course this is a research that takes, uh, takes a long time to do and uh, one needs this basic information to get there. And on a more, on a more long time uh, perspective, of course, finding out how the brain makes its own codes is also uh, of impl has also implications for for other brain diseases and for neurology and for psychiatry. If you understand how things go wrong in the brain, you can also interfere uh, and prevent uh, diseases and and maybe treat diseases if it's not gone too far. But do you really think there's a direct connection because Right now, no matter who, uh, who I interview, who's into basic research, I was talking to Sebastian Sun lately, he's a researcher in the connectome, yes. and sort of all the time Alzheimer's, schizophrenia comes up as some of the diseases that will be cured with this research. Sometimes I think why not just say it's basic basic research, we really don't know, but we, we need to start somewhere to understand. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think... Uh, I think uh, the reason why this comes up so often is that it is a collective effort. So we put together many pieces of the brain and each individual piece is of course just a piece uh, and nothing more. I mean the work we are doing is not sufficient for treating Alzheimer's mm -hmm. disease but it's one important piece and if you put it together with, with many of the other pieces like for example the connectome then uh, I think we are in a situation maybe in 10, 20, 30 years that is uh, much much better in for yeah. all of these major diseases and that's uh, uh, the major diseases do include uh, Alzheimer, schizophrenia, Parkinson mm -hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. What can the average non-scientist on the street gain from your findings? I would uh, reply at two levels. First of all I think it's uh, it's it's useful for the average person on the street to actually have general knowledge about the brain, just like it's useful to have general knowledge about uh, how uh, mountains are formed, uh, what the ocean looks like, how life evolves, mm -hmm. uh, anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, brain science, neuroscience hasn't really been part of the curricula in school because it's so new, mm -hmm. but uh, now it's, it is uh, a fundamental explanation of all of our behavior. Uh, and uh, it's useful for people to know about that because uh, such knowledge may then also uh, be useful when it comes to uh, treating diseases but also explaining why people behave like they do and uh, whether it is possible to change for example behaviors that you want more of and behaviors that mm -hmm. you don't want more of. I mean altruism on one side, aggression on the other side for mm -hmm. example. So uh, that is at the general level, uh, then specifically, of course, it matters to many persons on the street whether it is possible, whether there is research going on to address uh, major diseases in the brain. And uh, if you add up those major diseases, including Alzheimer, Parkinson, schizophrenia and so on, you easily come up to one third and, and, and many different neurological diseases. You come up to has been estimated that brain related diseases in some way or other account for at least one third mm -hmm. of the all diseases that uh, have been registered uh, because there are so many that have mm -hmm. for example alzheimer or dementia in various forms so that 
being able to address that uh, and, and in the end prevent and treat it is of course something that would matter to a lot of people, I would think. Before John O'Keefe and you and your wife started to experiment, physiological brain research mainly focused on the senses, like vision and hearing, which are closely connected to the outside world. What made you, as you said, jump into the middle of the brain? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's partly coincidence. So, of course, uh, it's important that John O'Keefe started with the place cells because then there was, was one observation in the middle of the brain that actually things could be linked to. And he, he began recording in the hippocampus because, uh, because uh, it was known to play a role in, in memories. Mm -hmm. uh, because persons who have damage to the hippocampus, they have severe memory deficits. deficits. And then he found the place cells more or less by chance. Uh, but he observed and then saw that these cells have this property. Uh, then it remained for a long time quite unexplained how this could all come about. But uh, that caught our interest, so we went to O'Keefe, we wanted to learn more about these techniques and then uh, gradually started to, to look for, see if there was a bigger system uh, of cells uh, around the place cells. And then since then, space system is one of the major uh, windows into the inner parts of the brain, of the cortex, but it's not the only one. Now people are starting to address questions in other parts of the middle of the brain too, and asking questions about how does the brain, for example, make decisions, how is planning taking place, and some of the very difficult cognitive functions which research now is beginning to address. Mm -hmm. So it's, space has been an example, but perhaps the one that has mm -hmm. gone furthest so far. Mm -hmm. Would you like to go in this direction? Because I remember you said yeah. something in another interview about that this always interested you, you know, higher cognitive functions. Yeah. And would you like to get away from orientation and places no. and grid cells? Not or? yet. <laughs> okay. No, I think there are still many uh, really interesting questions to, to address. Like, uh, for example, how does the grid pattern arise. I mean, why does it become hexagonal? Things like that are questions that we can easily solve with the approaches we are using now. Jumping to another brain area and other cognitive functions would be very interesting, but I, I don't feel really ready for it yet mm -hmm. because there are some really important things to solve still in the space system. Mm -hmm. Um, and in your talk, you were also uh, saying that you want to know how this grid is uh, created, yeah. and um, and that you probably now also use then computational neuroscience, mathematical models, to to analyze that. How important is that? Is that getting more and more important in, in neuroscience? Yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. So uh, um, over the last twenty, ten, twenty years, uh, uh, computational neuroscience has really grown and so the way many of us now work is that uh, that um, computational models sort of put all the data together see what is possible and equally importantly what is not possible and then how things can be done and make some predictions out from models in the computers how things could be and then those predictions uh, will have to be tested in animal experiments so that's what we are doing that we get the data and when we see it's right or wrong, usually it's maybe a little bit right but also wrong, but something mm -hmm. in between, then they refine their models and then 
make a new prediction on a revised model and then we test it again and it goes mm -hmm. back and forth in an alternating manner which I think dire directs us much better towards the goal than if uh, experimentalists were only trying randomly. So uh, it's important both because science goes faster and it's important because uh, it, re it reduces the need for, for animals. So animals are then used to take bigger steps in mm -hmm. science instead of um, going around in trial and error. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, so it sounds like computational neuroscience and web neuroscience go hand in hand because there also seems some friction and especially right now in Europe where there's a human brain project is under fire because it, yeah. you know, only thinking in terms of models and yeah. uh, old school neuroscientists feel but like um, yeah, left out. Sure, but then I would say that there are many ways to do computational neuroscience. I think the human brain project is is a very large scale project that builds up, piles up uh, a lot of information. That's one approach. That's not the one I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. No, the one, the, what I mean when I say computational neuroscience is mathematical models of how things are related, mm -hmm. how neurons work together to achieve a function. So it's actually the computations. Whereas the human brain project doesn't by itself do much computation. Mm. I mean, it's it's an accumulation of data. Mm. I, I think there are, there are different approaches, and I rather mean the actually the real computational mode, mm. which uh, approach which they actually calculate using quantitative approaches to find out how neurons could interact in order to achieve a certain function. Mm. So did you actually also sign the letter? Um, yeah, criticized? yeah. Criticized? Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, but I would should say that uh, among those who signed the letter, uh, almost the majority of computational neuroscientists in Europe signed the letter. Uh -huh. So it's okay, uh, quite interesting. Yeah. You can show the firing of the grid cells in reaction to a certain area in space, yet it is unclear from where the cells get their input. What is your guess? Proprioception, vestibular system, muscles, mm. vision, sound, mm. smell, higher centers in the brain. Mm. Where, where does it come from? Yeah, uh, first of all I would say that, that the grid pattern itself, the hexagonal pattern, uh, is not something that comes from outside, that's made up by the brain. Mm -hmm. But then uh, we need the sensor inputs to update uh, the grid pattern, which mm -hmm. grid cells are active at any given place. Mm -hmm. And for that you can use uh, several types of input, but I would think the most important one is actually uh, our own movement. So when we move, mm -hmm. uh, then uh, there are signals from the muscles going up to the brain that tell the brain that now you're moving so and so fast and, and even in what direction. But this would be proper receptive. Exactly, proprioceptive uh, uh, feedback. Mm -hmm. And that is probably the most important because the grid cells, as you change grid, active grid cells in, in accordance with movement mm -hmm. in the room, that is strictly related to how much you actually move and what direction you move more than uh, so th this works also when for example uh, visual inputs are unavailable when rats walk in a completely dark room mm -hmm. they can still do this the problem is that uh, over time then there is error and then error accumulates so each mm -hmm. time you make an error you put add that error into the equation and it gets more and more and more mm -hmm. so it's just like if you're blindfolded and walking around it works quite okay for a few meters and a few turns, but then mm -hmm. it sort of gets less and less accurate uh, until you correct it by, for example, bumping into a wall mm -hmm. or things like that. 
but when in normal conditions, when you can use your eyes, then uh, vision is used all the time to correct or calibrate mm -hmm. this uh, movement-based mm -hmm. map so that it is actually quite accurate. So vision, I would say, would be very important for the calibration because it's always present. But of course you can also use tactile inputs that you bump into a wall mm -hmm. or a corner. Or you can use, and, and, and rats use their whiskers mm -hmm. to oh, touch. rats can use a sense of smell. Yeah, smell mm -hmm. too. But smell is not so accurate. I mean, vision is much more accurate. So, mm -hmm. but, but in principle, anything can be used. Mm -hmm. yeah. And when there would be a hypothetical animal that was born blind and paralyzed, would there still be this pattern in the brain? Yeah, blind, I would say yes, mm -hmm. uh, because you don't need vision to, to orient yourself in, in space. But uh, paralyzed, that would be difficult. I, uh, I would think if an animal had never ever moved in life, I uh, would uh, not expect these grid cells to be fully normal. Mm -hmm. But that said, I mean, there is a strong innate component to, to these cells. So uh, the place cells and also the grid cells are expressed very early in life. But uh, I still think that to get the system to work and to get the system to update itself, mm -hmm. then, then uh, the animal needs probably the experience of moving mm -hmm. itself. Yeah, but then there, it would be interesting to do experiments like uh, Hugel and Wiesel about mm -hmm. closing the eye and, and then see what happens in the brain. And to have an animal that after birth can't move for a while and... Uh, yeah, yeah, no, so we are doing some experiments like that, not closing eyes, but mm -hmm. uh, we, are, uh, so we have some rats that are actually raised in somewhat strange environments, in spherical environments, in the sphere. Uh -huh, okay. Yes. Uh -huh. So a big, have big no, sphere. No borders. No, exactly. No borders. Exactly. That's the point. Exactly. That's the point. So there are no, at least no, no vertical borders. Mm -hmm. So, and we are then asking if they are raised in those types of environments, whether they still develop the grid. So far, it seems like they do. They need maybe a little bit more time, but, uh, but uh, by and large, uh, the grid is is is, is highly. Uh, stereotyped, so I mean, it's quite hard to achieve a situation where grid cells don't develop apparently. Mm -hmm. And then it would be interesting to see how the grid cell works uh, in, for example, in birds that have yeah. more 3D. Absolutely. Birds, uh, so there is work going on in uh, in a group in Israel, Nachum Ulanovsky is his name, where they record from bats. So bats is easier because mm -hmm. they have. Uh, uh, their brain looks much more like uh, the, the rodent brain. Mm -hmm. So they can find the uh, entorhinal cortex, they can find uh, the same layers where we recorded grid cells in, in rodents and so on. And they found grid cells and uh, they show that the grid cells look normal when the bats are crawling on a surface. Mm -hmm. Uh, and now they are testing them while the, grid, while the bats are flying. So, uh, so far what we know is that during flight, uh, these bats have place cells, so they are circular place fields instead. Mm -hmm. And they are now looking into what happens to the grid cells. Uh, and that is still an open question, but mm, it will come very soon. Sounds like a challenging experimental design. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Imagine the electrodes and flying bats. Yeah, so of course they have to do. Uh, they have to use. They can't use cables like we are doing. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but but still, it's, it is somewhat challenging. <laughs> And they get so much space to cover too, because these bats need a fairly large room yeah. to fly around. Yeah. So. 
What is the most pressing problem that you would like to solve in the next decades and what methods will be important to get there? Well, we want, in a general sense, to understand how the many grid cells, how the whole system interacts, uh, how, how different grid cells interact with each other, how the grid pattern is formed, because we see it as one of the available neural codes that the brain really makes on its own. Uh, we want to know how the different types of cells interact with each other. For example, how grid cells interact with border cells, how border cells maybe are used to align grid cells to the environment, uh, and how they uh, influence the, the place cells and vice versa. So now we know there are these many types of cells, but we don't really know how they work together to give the animal a feeling of where it is. Mm. And uh, in all of these approaches, one really needs to know the activity of large numbers of cells uh, at the same time. So uh, the techniques we have used so far can be extended and will be extended because uh, there is much development going on in designing probes that can pick up the activity from many, many more cells. You that can is, now use a hundred? Yeah, now we are around a hundred, uh, mm -hmm. but the idea is to get many thousands, mm -hmm. many, many, uh, and then also pick up the activity from those cells that are less frequent. And other approaches are the optical approaches that, uh, that they are using here, where um, the idea is to see the spatial relationship of all the cells, or many of the cells mm -hmm. in the network. And also, uh, at the next stage, not only see how they are laid out in, in, in anatomical space, but also how they are connected to each other. Mm. Um, so that is the functional part of the connectome then. I mean, we know the connections, mm. but then ask what, what does it actually matter? What is the consequence of having a connection from this cell to that cell and so on? So uh, those would be important questions within the field that we are working. And of course, more broadly, one wants to understand uh, also other complex cognitive uh, functions. Mm -hmm. So the entire range. Mm -hmm. yeah. What would be your dream experiment? <laughs> uh, you get all the money you want to, all the labs, best people, uh, tons of PhD students. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I'm not sure there's one experiment, but of course if, if I were able to uh, get the activity simultaneously from a large number of neurons in a brain circuit, or maybe maybe even all of them, uh, at the same time as the animal was doing a behavior, for example, storing a memory or going from A to B in, in space, and we were then able to turn on and off the cells just as we wanted uh, to see what is the consequence of any given pattern of activity in the neuron, I would think we'll get much closer to understanding how the cell circuit operates. Uh, the challenge would still, even if we had all of this information available, would be that it would push us on on actually creating ideas or models of how it could work. And quite often this is lagging behind the techniques, because the techniques are really developing very fast. And I can say what kind of information I want to have, like the activity of many, many neurons. Mm -hmm and so on, but um, then having all that, it's still a challenge when what you do, if you now have the firing rates across a certain time for maybe say 10,000 cells, mm. um, how do you all put it all together? So um, and that's, that is the really hard thinking part. But it would be a step in, in, in the right direction if you really could uh, pick up the activity of, of every single cell 
in the circuit and even ask what is the consequence of different patterns of activity would get us much further in terms of understanding how, how all of these cells uh, collaborate. Mm. But how would you turn them on and off? Yeah, so there, there are techniques that have already been developed. So if you express, for example, light-sensitive uh, gene in, uh, in those cells, it's called opto optogenetics. Mm. If you express that gene only in your target cell, you can then use light to turn it on and off mm. as you want. Of course, the specificity is not solved at the moment, so you mm. need to get those genes just into the cells you're mm. interested in. According to a journalist in the magazine Nature, you and your wife's brain function as one. <laughs> But I guess there are some differences. Do you think yeah. women address brain research differently than men? I think, by and large, the way we do neuroscience is, is uh, the same. So, I think I, I don't really have any scientific... Uh, answer to, to, mm -hmm. to that question. I mean, what mm -hmm. is striking is, of course, the individual differences, but, uh, I mean, you have... Uh, there's no systematic pattern mm -hmm. that I really know of. I mean, getting good ideas, being good uh, at running experiments, analyzing, that may uh, exist uh, in both uh, men and women. Comparing it, perhaps there are some functions that are more expressed in men and some more in women but um, but by and large I mm -hmm. mean it's I'm sure if you do the population analysis you don't really find many systematic differences mm -hmm. there's so much variation what do you and your wife plan to do with the money which will be around 430,000 euro have a nice holiday or <laughs> buy a boat <laughs> no it won't be a holiday it won't be a boat uh, we haven't actually not at all decided so we have just put this uh, off because we need to mm -hmm. think about it mm -hmm. uh, so i mean many people have asked about that and, and i don't mm -hmm. don't have a clear yeah. an answer thought a little bit about it but uh, it's uh, Uh, something we need to spend time on uh, before we decide. Mm -hmm. What is the most important ingredient in groundbreaking research? Creative thinking, intelligence, industriousness, good teamwork or luck? And you must pick only one. <laughs> yeah, but you must pick one. That's a, <laughs> that's a problem because I think uh, the answer is that uh, it, it isn't the only one. I think, of course, you have to be creative. You have, need to, to be willing to or, or have the, the ability to think differently from others. Mm -hmm. uh, that is very important, uh, to go your own ways, put things together in, in ways that others haven't done before. Maybe expose yourself to knowledge uh, that is sort of not only with your, within your own little field, but also from mm -hmm. others. You can combine things others mm -hmm. haven't done before. That is important. And then uh, when you do that, you also need to be observant so you can actually see patterns that maybe others wouldn't have noticed. And the more you know, the more you can tell the significance of what you observe, whether it is important or not important. Then, uh, of course, you need to work. So, I mean, that is also... Um, but not all that much. I think, uh, at least my own experience, is that I don't get much more done if I had worked all the day than mm -hmm. if I just uh, work until... Uh, I feel now it's enough. So uh, seeing it through throughout the whole life, myself, for example, uh, and Margaret, uh, of course we have worked a lot. Uh, it would never would never been where we are if we had uh, worked only from nine to four. And then um, luck, to some extent, yes, but uh, but I would also say that many scientists are exposed to. I mean, many things you discover in science is unexpected but then it depends on what you make out of it and whether 
you you when you see it whether you follow it up and ask why it has it. so some sort of flexibility in mind is is probably also uh, important but teamwork yeah that, of course neuroscience especially but science in general has evolved to become more and more dependent on on other people because uh, it is so complex and combines many many disciplines so neuroscience isn't any longer like what it was 100 years ago when one person sits above his or her microscope. So uh, today it is uh, involves uh, intersection. It's an intersection between uh, between many fields like biology, physics, uh, mathematics, computational science, chemistry, and so on, psychology. Mm. Uh, and no one knows all of this. So you really need to work together. Uh, uh, to achieve, uh, so you get much further if you work together with others uh, where different people know different things than if mm -hmm. you did all on your own. What do you do when you're not in the lab? Well, I like to be outside. I like um, at least once a week in the weekend to go for a walk in the mountains, in the local mountains. If I'm traveling further away, I like to go on volcanoes. And then uh, I also like to go to concerts. Mm -hmm. What kind of music do you like? Um, Oh, I mean, quite often I go to jazz music. Uh, there are concerts locally. It's a good jazz environment in Trondheim. Professor Moses, thank you very much for the interview. Dear listeners, thank you for your attention. You were listening to the podcast Neurific.